The Australian Traditional Medicine Society will be holding their functional GI symposium in Sydney on Sunday the 15th of September 2019. This event will focus on specialised integrative and naturopathic approaches to the diagnosis, evaluation and treatment of a variety of GI presentations featuring five experts across a full day of learning. To find out more, go to atms.com.au and click on the Events tab. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Dr. Narala Jacobi, who graduated from Bastia University in 1998. She practiced as a primary care naturopathic physician in Montana for seven years before arriving in Australia. She's considered one of Australia's leading experts in the treatment of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO, a common cause of IBS. She's the medical director of SIBOTEST, an online testing service for practitioners, and she's so passionate about educating patients that she founded the SIBO Doctor, an online professional education platform for functional digestive disorders. Welcome to FX Medicine, Narala. How are you going? I'm going great. Thanks for inviting me again, Andrew. Thanks for joining us here. Now, we're going to be talking today about functional GIT physical examination, but not just that. But what is the functional gut exam or GIT physical exam and how does it differ from an orthodox abdominal examination? Sure, and that's a great question. Um, you know, when we examine patients, and let me backtrack a little because a lot of uh, functional practitioners and a lot of naturopaths in Australia don't really examine their patients as much as I think um, they could. Mm. And there's a lot to be learned from physical exams. It used to be that you make your diagnosis um, on sort of a, a three-legged stool, you know, like what patients tell, like the history, what patient tells you, the lab results, and also the physical exams. That was always the objective finding in our soap notes. Um, so this is, uh, I think, sort of a lost art, and not only for functional practitioners and naturopaths, but also for GPs. There, there's so many people that come to see me that say, wow, I've never had that exam done, which is part of an orth um, orthodox abdominal exam, for example, like um, the gallbladder exam or Murphy's, for example. So um, I think generally that it, with the ever decreasing amount of time that people spend with mm. patients, especially in the conventional medical model, um, often at the expense of physical exams. And I find that they're really useful and just want to sort of revive the enthusiasm for uh, physical exam skills. So an orthodox uh, or, you know, sort of general conventional GIT exams uh, includes looking in your mouth maybe uh, to kind of assess the um, the the teeth, how well you can chew your food, often that's neglected as well. But then we move basically to the abdomen and it's inspection, auscultation, and palpation, and then deeper palpation. So those that's that's basically takes about 30 seconds to do. But when we examine patients in a more functional way, we look at the hair, the nails, the eyes, the tongue, 
um, that already can give you a huge amount of information on nutritional deficiencies. And then we can uh, move into particular reflex points to assess for low stomach acid, for example, or digestive difficulties. These are uh, well-known reflex points and also organ mobility. Sometimes, uh, for example, I see patients that obviously have a lot of functional digestive difficulty and, and epigastric pain and bloating. And sometimes when I just examine the costal margin or the edge of the ribs and find a very, very tight diaphragm, that alone can cause a lot of their discomfort. So knowing that would then mean that I'm not going to necessarily give them supplements, but really work physically on releasing that diaphragm, just as an example. Um, but also using things like uh, the blood pressure cuff for tissue mineral assessments is, is really helpful. Um, and looking at a particular muscle strength in different areas. I mean, there's just so much information that the body can give you if you really know where to look. Well, yeah, now that's something I know nothing about. How do you use a blood pressure cuff to assess mineral status? It's a really easy, simple trick. Um, and if we think about all the uh, minerals that are involved in muscular contraction and relaxation, we have magnesium, we've got calcium, we have potassium and even sodium. So it's not specific for any one nutritional deficiency. But when people, uh, you know, often uh, when you consider that they're maybe their stomach acid is low and they can't absorb naturally a lot of minerals, even if you're supplementing a lot of minerals and they still are cramping. A good test to do is basically it's just placing a large blood pressure cuff around the calf and uh, seeing how far that patient can, can tolerate the pressure of that uh, blood pressure cuff. A normal no cramping calf should take about 220 um, um, millimeters of mercury. Yeah. And so that's pretty normal. It might be uncomfortable, but many people, you can kind of gauge how deficient they are uh, by how quickly they say, oh, stop, I'm going to be cramping. So I've had people as low as 80 and they're severely uh, you know, mineral deficient. So it kind of helps to know uh, the degree of mineral uh, deficiency, basically just as a screen. And so if you are already supplementing and that patient is still deficient, you might want to look elsewhere as to why are they not absorbing these minerals or why are they not utilizing these minerals. So it's helpful. Is that kind of like a, a forced claudication? Um, in a way, it is, but it's not so much claudication with ter in terms of vessels. It's really the muscle that we're actually contracting, right, that we're really compressing. That's yeah. really interesting. Mm, and <laughs> it really works. I mean, these are the little tricks that I've learned along the way. I mean, I've had my physical exam training 25 years ago or so now, so it's been a long time, but there are masters in functional GIT exams. And one of those masters is Dr. Stephen Sandberg-Lewis, who yes. actually came out to Australia. I know Biocyticals had him for a SIBO talk, but he really is a master in functional um, assessment of the body. So um, I think that, that really also revived my uh, enjoyment of using simple techniques to give me a lot of information about a patient that don't necessarily require that you do a test. And he's a lovely man too. Um, mm, very uh, lovely man. So what else can we learn from examining your patient's physical presentations? I mean, you mentioned Murphy's sign previously. The, I mean, Murphy's sign is the basic assessment of gallbladder problems, right? Where you're actually compressing um, or you're, you're sort of 
allowing the 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 patient to uh, relax and then compress the uh, right below the right sternal margin or or costal margin rather and you're eliciting you're looking for a sharp inhalation and eliciting a pain response that would indicate that this person's gallbladder is problematic. That's a really crude assessment of that. But even if we just start by the patient walking in your room and assessing their gait, I mean, it really starts there and seeing if they're shuffling, if they're coordinated. Doubled over, yeah. Yes. I mean, you know, in my line of work where I deal with a lot of digestive issues, constipation is a problem. We know Parkinson's, the very first symptom is constipation very often. So you start to put these pictures together. And I just think that um, adding in physical examination skills can just kind of give you more of a 3D picture of that. So that's just an example. But for example, um, I also look at fingernails. So if you, you know, we know about the spooning with iron deficiency, but ridging also can be uh, connective tissue issues and um, basically protein deficiency and things like that. And I actually monitor nails and they definitely improve when you target um, absorption of certain nutrients and improve mineral status. Just as, as an example, we know that um, the tip of the tongue or the 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 color of the tongue can indicate a B12 deficiency. Mm. Those little things that can, um, you know, make it really simple for you without actually testing anything. That's always is what I'm kind of passionate about is because I think functional medical practitioners and naturopaths um, are sometimes guilty of over-testing when, when sometimes physical exams can tell you what you need to know. You know what? I'm so glad that you're talking about this because I th- I've said this before, I know, but there was, and I'll always remember this lady who basically saved my mind and pr- perhaps my profession, and that was um, Sister Geddes, who when I thought it was all too much, she said, you, all, you can learn all the technical stuff in time, but right now I want you to observe your patients. Mm-hmm. And, and it was a, a, an amazingly important lesson, observing mm-hmm. your patients. It's amazing how many people forget to observe. Exactly. Exactly. If you, you know, like if you, you can check vagal tone, for example, just looking at the palatal rise in the, in, you know, in the back of the mouth, you can just putting a tongue blade on your patient's tongue, you can observe um, their dental health. You can look for halitosis. You can look for all these different things that yeah. give you clues about their digestive status. So um, it's been really fun to get back into that. And, you know, I mean, a lot of my practice is online, so I don't get to do it with everyone. Yeah. But it is something that I'm also passionate about teaching practitioners to revive their skill and um, their tactile sense and touching their patients. Yes. When you're looking at fingernail examination and signs, um, like, for instance, Bose lines, um, they're a horizontal line, correct? Well, there's clubbing, right? There's all kinds of things. And, I mean, those are really obvious, and I'm not even talking about those, Andrew, you know. I mean, those are, we know, are specifically, you know, if you're looking at splinter hemorrhages, very much associated with particular rheumatic diseases, but... But that, that's actually, you already know that that person has rheumatic disease, you know, or pulmonary issues with clubbing. But what we're talking about are the hidden things that where you don't really know um, what name to give uh, a particular condition that this person walks in with. That's what functional medicine um, and natural medicine is really about. We're looking at 
how is this body handling whatever stressors or toxins or or infections um, without necessarily, I mean, we want to diagnose, obviously, but it doesn't always have a name, right? Yeah. So it's not always cardiomyopathy, thank God. It's not always um, rheumatoid arthritis. It's sometimes a really uh, sort of overloaded system that has multiple pathways that are that are compromised and you're looking for the best way in how can i best help this patient and what nutrient um, or dietary adjustment should i make for that patient so they their body can help themselves or heal themselves and that's really the the heart of naturopathic medicine but also functional medicine looks at the function of the body right the different pathways so it's it, I, I think that's why it's so helpful because it can give you an idea of what to really prioritize too. Yeah. Zinc. One of the easiest ways to assess zinc is said to be the white spots in the nails. I've never, ever found any evidence to support that. And yet trialing some zinc has always gotten rid of those white spots. Help. That's right. Help. That's right. But I, I don't stop there. I'm like, okay, white spot. Okay, is it just a dietary deficiency of zinc? Is it, is absorption? it a malabsorption it's, yeah, issue? Yeah. Right? You need zinc to for the production of hydrochloric acid as well. Yeah. So is this sort of a um, you know, the plot thickens then when you have um a zinc deficiency. Sometimes it is just as easy as increasing zinc in their diet or supplementing for a period of time. But um, yeah, it's always about looking deeper into why is this person presenting with these nutritional deficiencies that are not explained by the diet. Such an important point. Thanks so much for, for reiterating that. Because we often do. We often lead the way, um, forget the way, if you like, and just stop at that, there we go, I have an answer, and that's mm -hmm. it. Whereas what you're doing is you're saying, no, you need, it gives you an opportunity to ask the question, why did that happen in the first place? That's right. And that's, you know, one of, as you mentioned in the bio, it, my specialty is SIBO. And after almost 10 years of, of really specializing in SIBO and, and focusing on that, it's, it's not really so much about the SIBO. The SIBO is an end result of something. It's really about finding out why this person presented with an overgrowth of bacteria to begin with. So that's a lot more um, rewarding for me at this stage than just treating SIBO. Treating SIBO is not difficult. It's about preventing relapse and understanding what caused that in the, you know, in the first place. Was it adhesions? Um, so an outflow problem? Was it um, some problem with motility in the upper gut? What is really going on with this person? And I think we need to be better clinicians really in that way, in that we ask the, the more difficult question of why did this happen mm. to this person. Mm. Do you ever see with SIBO being a, I'm going to use the word dysbiotic um, uh, scenario, if you like, do you ever see um, examples higher up in the alimentary tract of disproportionate overgrowth of bacteria, like for instance, with the tongue? We're not looking at things like, you know, black tongue or um, anything like a super infection, but do you ever see um, nuances in in their tongue? Like, for instance, um, IBS can cause dehydration. Do you ever use the tongue, you know, commonly? No, not specifically for SIBO. You can't really tie that to any one 
um, sign. It's some, you know, because SIBO has what I would say four different categories of underlying causes, and all those will present differently physically, right? So, so sometimes, um, some, I mean, I do see uh, quite a bit of geographic tongue. In my dysbiotic patients, there is some research looking into the oral microbiome as a contributor to um, SIBO, especially those that are hypochlorhydric. So there are connections between different biomes and or malfunction there and the resulting SIBO, especially if there's poor oral hygiene or if there are infections in the mouth. Um, that can that can is actually being actively researched, and especially if you are on a proton pump inhibitor that's in, that's inhibiting the major bactericidal juice of the body. Um, you know that can happen. That can certainly result, but there isn't a specific sign, um, a physical sign that that correlates with SIBO as the only one. Gotcha. Uh, as the only physical sign. Yeah. And earlier on, you mentioned um, dentition. And, you know, we're not just talking about being able to chew, but indeed there's a microbiome and microbiota um, which um, inhabits our mouth and our buccal buccal area. Um, so do you ever see any – correlation is a bit too strong, but um, hints that something might be going wrong down below – uh, you know, if I was going to say reflux, that's still, you know, quite lower down the esophagus, but something along that sort of lines. Do you ever see hints and tips there? Absolutely. I, I, you know, whenever I have a patient in my office, I do look in their mouth. I look at the soft palate. I look at the teeth themselves. I look at if they still have old mercury fillings. I ask about root canals. I ask about these things because I have had patients and currently have patients who their digestive symptoms started after they had a root canal place or they had a massive stress. They had a root canal maybe 20 years ago, then they underwent an, a massive stress that then started to um, uh, sort of spread the infection. You yeah. know, And the way root canals, the way I understand it, and I have some experience with that because I had a colleague who, who became very, very ill from multiple root canals and um, anaerobic infections that spread through the maxillary. Um, maxilla. So, so you know that that's a real thing that happens. And with root canals, you can have a small infection that normally the body sequesters. It's pretty good at sequestering small amounts of infection. But when you have a massive stressor that acts as a trigger um, and allows now this infection that had been previously walled off to spread, you can all of a sudden become really ill. And it looks a lot like chronic Lyme infection or mold or all these types of illnesses where the body's immune system has been overwhelmed. And I have a patient right now who's tested positive for SIBO. And um, upon further investigation, she had two root canals that were um, massively infected. So, you know, there are, there's no, I'm not saying that the infection in the mouth, which is often um, anaerobic, can uh, can cause SIBO. That's not what I'm saying, but it, there's a lot of immunomodulation um, that doesn't occur when your body is busy with other infections. Um, and mucosally, that's, of course, very important in the small intestine. Stephen Sandberg-Lewis in his book mentions a thing called the hiatal hernia manoeuvre. Can you tell us what that is all about, please? That's quite possibly the most... Um, 
my most favorite maneuver and the most revolutionary that I've experienced in my 20 plus years of practice. It really is. And it's not hyperbole. It's like one of those things that comes along, you never knew about it and you do it. And all of a sudden a patient that's had five years of epigastric pain sits up and says, oh my God, the pain is gone. It's that powerful. So if we look about, if we think about a hiatal hernia, oftentimes it's diagnosed by a, in, a gastroscopy or an endoscope. And oftentimes actually when they're too small, to see, which is, and then in a nutshell, a hiatal hernia is where part of the stomach has squeezed through the hole in the diaphragm that allows the esophagus to go through the diaphragm. And it can actually cause a tremendous amount of epigastric discomfort, anxiety, gastroparesis, and a lot of digestive symptoms. And I've, I really didn't know that much about it. I always thought, okay, well, I only tested on people that have reflux. Uh, but it really has a, a place in um, a lot of the epigastric dyspepsia, for example, functional dyspepsia, I often check for hiatal hernia. So <clears throat> basically, it's a maneuver that aims to pull the stomach back through the hole in the diaphragm, but in such a way that actually um, repositions the stomach properly below the diaphragm and it takes about five minutes to do. You also do some things on um, on the spine, um, distraction of uh, the scalenes, for example, and, and uh, compressing certain trigger points to allow this maneuver to settle. And it is really amazing. And he taught it at um, last year's functional GI physical exam practicum, which is a course that people can access on the SIBODoctor.com where they can learn this maneuver, because I wanted to make this available to as many practitioners as possible. It is part of a, of a greater course that is caught, uh, taught by Dr. Sandberg-Lewis. So you'll learn a lot of different things about functional GI exams. But this one, for sure, it, for me personally, was worth it uh, just to have him fly out here just to teach us this one maneuver. And the other one is the ileocecal valve maneuver. And it turns out the ileocecal valve is, is um, very often a problem for people with functional digestive disorders because of either they had an um, appendix removed and there is adhesions and scar tissues, or maybe there is uh, inflammation or uh, just uh, distal small intestine bacterial overgrowth or dysbiosis in the large bowel that all cause this area to be really sore. And what happens is the ileocecal valve is a valve, just like um, other valves in the body. It can be stuck closed. It can be stuck open. And so you can actually physically man uh, manipulate this valve and you can teach your patient how to do this every day. And it can also be quite uh, revolutionary, really, for these patients when they uh, when they are out of pain and there is an answer for their for their problem. Yeah. So I'm just wondering about ileocecal valve pain, you know, and I'm I'm wondering about red flags here. You know, um, for instance, um, an inexperienced practitioner, somebody who hasn't been taught this, um, how to do it properly, if they're going to do the um, the hiatal hernia maneuver which accesses the, um, the sternal um, notch where the xiphoid process is, um, mm -hmm. you know, one could 
assume that somebody silly might break that off. And that, I mean, that's happened in other things. I know that it can take quite a lot of force, but there's, there is that risk. Um, with ileocecal valve, valve manoeuvre, people would likewise have to be cautious that it's not a grumbling appendix or a, a bowel obstruction. Right. So what other mm. learning is important to go along with this to make sure that people are, are doing the right things? Well, it is a course for professionals, right? So the, the, it's, it uh, assumes that there has been some professional training um, in the health sector, right? Yeah. So so that's, that's what we're assuming. We also... Uh, get people ready with with sort of an intro uh, video or webinar where people kind of refresh their their skills. But we're not promoting this for people that have never really been taught how to touch a patient. Yeah. So there is some some understanding that the basics. Um, I mean, if you've never taken the blood pressure of a patient, you probably, this course is not for you. Yeah, that's right. This course is not for you. I want to always yeah. cover these red flags because yeah. despite ethics medicine being designed for practitioners, it's available on iTunes, available mm-hmm. to all, and I want people to be doubly sure that they're doing the right thing yeah. and that they're being safe. Well, the ileum sequel valve maneuver is a pretty safe maneuver. You know, you're not going to burst somebody's appendix because you'd have to peel them off the ceiling first because <laughs> it's so painful, you know. <laughs> You're not gonna. You're not gonna really uh, do much harm. Th- they, they'll tell you. I think they'd be telling you with the rebound pain. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, even things like you know, a, a, let's say a nearly blocked ileocecal valve with a bolus of worms or something like that. That's happened. That's never happened. I've oh. never seen it ah, in okay. my practice, and they never say never. Uh, of course, but any time you touch a patient. Um, you know, you you assume some sort of skill to understand what your hands are feeling and uh, what you're actually looking for. Yeah. When we're talking about uh, physical examination, in this case, the Murphy's sign, what are the important things to remember, though? So, you know, again, with with the Murphy's and, you know, I've, I've actually um, mentored and taught a lot of practitioners about physical exam skills and, um, you know, mentored a lot of students. and and. By far, the most prevailing finding I see is that they just don't touch strong enough. Right. So I'm far less concerned about them doing damage by, you know, ramming their fist into somebody's abdomen, which is not going to happen, but more likely that they just don't use enough pressure to really get the finding or to get an accurate understanding of what's happening. And really what you're doing with the Murphys is um, you're really trying to elicit the pain or no pain, that's all it is. You know, you in order for you to really palpate the liver border, you're going to have to do, also do some percussion um, uh, Go, you know, of the liver border that's a bit more accurate because you can miss the liver bur- border with the Murphys if that's all you're looking for. Right. So, but, you know, those are the little things. And again, we're talking about the average functional practitioner and naturopath and sort of holistic practitioner, not an ER setting where you're going to have, you know, portal hypertension and all these sort of things. Triple A's. Yeah. (laughs) You're just not going to, that's not what we're talking about. We're just encouraging people to not be afraid if they're allowed to touch their patients um, with their, with the license that they have, they should be able to practice these physics can just even the skin, you know, you can just dryness of the skin, skin turgor to understand hydration status or understand essential fatty acid deficiencies. You know, I mean, it's so simple. 
you don't need a blood test for that. To me, it's part of the lost value of, as we mentioned at the right at the beginning, the observance of the patient and the yes. the whole examination skills that we should be doing. Mm-hmm. Mm. And you know, my mentor. Well, he wasn't really my mentor, but Best, Dr. Bastier was is a very revered naturopath who's passed away now. Was the founder, obviously. Well, he wasn't actually the founder. It was Dr. Prisorno plus others who founded Bastier University. But he taught us. He said always always touch your patient, even if it's just a hand on the shoulder as you guide them out of your office, but always make that human connection. And I think a physical exam, even a small one, even if you're just looking, reaching across the desk and looking at their fingernails or, or looking at their skin, um, it's so simple and it really humanizes the experience and it, it actually increases confidence in the practitioner from the patient. You mentioned reflexes before. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Yeah. And, you know, reflexes, we think of just the hammer on the knee. That's not what I'm talking about, although those are also good reflexes. (laughs) Um, I'm talking more about points that have been um, uh, discovered in a way by, you know, it's like these old uh, chiropractors and osteopaths, um, you know, turn of the century, they had systems of assessing um, that use different organ reflexes, whether that was in different dermatomes or using um, uh, different organ reflexes is really what they what they looked at. And one particular man was Dr. Riddler. And Dr. Riddler gave us the Riddler's hypochlorhydric um, or the um, Riddler's stomach acid point or the stomach point, let's say. I use it a lot in my clinic. And it basically is on the left hand of the costal margin, so about an inch below the xiphoid over to the left, and really palpating um, for tenderness in that area. And I tell you, it's so often accurate. Most of the people with reflux, um, all of them have that point super, super tender. And um, people that are really hypochlorhydric also Mm. have that point uh, often very tender. When I say hypochlorhydric, this is not documented with a Heidelberg, but just improvement with either bitters or hydrochloric acid supplementation right. subsequent to that test, right? So so that particular point has been proven very useful for people to pinpoint um, if it's super tender compared to, let's say, the pancreatic reflex point. So you would start with uh, possibly bitter uh, bitters. There is a fascinating... Um, test called the uh, lingual neural test that Dr. Stephen Sandberg-Lewis also talks about in his book, Functional Gastroenterology, I think it's called. Yes. And basically, it's where, let's say that Riddler's point is very tender on a patient, and you put a substance in their mouth and wait about 30 seconds, and that pain will be gone. Right. So these are the kinds of miraculous we don't really fully understand, but he explains it that the lingual um, reflex is the quickest way to the brain. And so it actually uh, is is very easily assessed whether or not this particular substance is going to be beneficial to this patient. So I do it. I have a bottle of bitters in my office. And if that if that point is very tender, I put some bitters on that person's tongue. I wait 20, 30 seconds. And almost always, it will work if it's going to if it's going to work. That pain will be gone, or at least ninety percent better. And so, you know, it's just one of those um, little tricks of the trade that just makes the 
the experience a little bit uh, more, uh, like I said, have more confidence in what you're prescribing because you know that substance is going to work for that patient. Right. So that's that's an old, old point that has been revived by Dr. Um, SSL, as we affectionately call him, or mm. Dr. Steven Sandberg-Lewis. Mm. And there are others, um, the failures points, and like he, he really gives a lot of homage to a lot of these old chiropractors that uh, have figured a lot of these reflexes out and that make our functional exam a lot easier. This is really interesting stuff, I've got to say, Norella. You're going to be speaking about some of this, at least, at the ATMS Functional GI Symposium in September 2019. What sort of other things are you going to be covering there without giving too much away? Um, I've got to ask, though, are you going to be demonstrating any of these at the symposium? Um, yep, I'll be demonstrating some of them live. Some of it will yeah. be video. Yeah. Some of it will just be talk. Like uh, the five skills or five physical GIT exam skills that I'll be covering is proper assessment of eyes, nails, and tongue. So when I say eyes, it looks at sclera, you know, pterygiums, that kind of things. What what are associated with with that? Um, also nails and some of the things we covered here. Uh, tongue and uh, all that. And then also the hypochlorhydria palpation techniques that I just sort of briefed over, but they're uh, really uh, having people experiment this on themselves. I'll also talk about how easy it is to assess the vagal tone, right? Everybody talks about brain, uh, gut brain access and uh, the vagus nerve being so very important in digestive function, which of course it is. And so or sensitive and vulnerable to chronic infections and the function of the vagus, vagus nerve be very sensitive. And so a quick and easy way to assess the vagal tone. And I'll talk about the Murphy's gallbladder point and then the mineral status. So you'll get all of that uh, plus these other skills that I'll talk about in, um, in the symposium. And, and for practitioners that want to delve further and they want to get, you know, right into specializing in SIBO or looking after GI patients properly. Um, you're, you've developed a course, right? An online course? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I've been passionate about ever since really I, I became a practitioner is uh, not just mentorship for students, but also teaching practitioners, right? So especially when it came to SIBO, because no one really knew what they were doing, myself included, when I first started. And so I really endeavored to learn everything about it. And what's morphed out of that is that um, I love having a platform, the SIBO doctor, that actually allows me to showcase different talents like Dr. Steven, Steven Sandberg-Lewis and his functional GIT physical exam practicum that we spent two days uh, with him here and we turned that into a professional course and I'll have another course upcoming, which is um, Mastering Inflammatory Bowel Disease with Dr. Ilana Gorovich, who is an incredible specialist in this field. So really allowing us to dive much deeper into these topics um, and become really digestive experts for those that, that really want to pursue that. That's awesome. So you're really gathering like the best that the world has got to offer yeah. and, and putting, you know, housing it in Australia. So that's awesome. Well, it's like my wish list, you know, it's people that I want to learn from. Yeah. So, you know, it's, well it's done. wonderful to be able to showcase them for yeah. sure. Well done. Can't wait. And I would urge every practitioner to attend the ATMS Symposium if you, any of your patients have a GI disorder, which is only a few, of course. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. <laughs> I'll wait. Only about 90% of them. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Narala Jacoby, thank you so much for taking us through. Just a, just a tidbit of what you'll be covering at the, uh, at the symposium later on. And um, again, thank you so much for what you've brought to so many, not just patients, but also other practitioners, so that again, they can help their patients in turn. Well done to you. Thank you. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Andrew. <laughs> this is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast is brought to you by the ATMS, the Australian Traditional Medicine Society. <laughs>